This is a podcast about new crops. You're going to love it. Join us on The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. I think they're a great crop. I think they have a huge potential for the health food market and just for overall taste. And we just, the biggest, the biggest holdback and setback we have right now is that nobody knows what a black currant is. Welcome to The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. I'm Jason Fishbach, the agriculture agent for Ashland and Bayfield Counties, and today's episode is all about currants, black currants, white currants, maybe, pink currants, and red currants. And uh, with me is Eric Wolski. Do I have that pronunciation right, Eric? You do. Yep. With the University of Illinois. And uh, I think it's going to be a great episode as we talk through currants because it's a crop that can grow phenomenally well in the upper Midwest. Uh, the only thing holding us back really are markets and maybe some historical reticence to grow currants because of white pine blister rust, but we'll get into all that. So, Eric, welcome. And uh, if you could introduce yourself and how you've been involved with currants over the years. Hi. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Eric Wolski. I'm a PhD candidate at University of Illinois. I'm in my hopeful final year of research here after a pretty long time studying currents. I started off looking at the shade tolerance of currents with my master's um, in the hopes of them being able to get included into um, agroforestry systems. And we found that they respond very well to shade, uh, that they can still produce good sizable yields without too much issues from disease. And so from there, I moved on to my PhD work, which was exploring then 24 varieties of black currants, red currants, and white currants, and a pink currant. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we grow those um, across the state and Wisconsin and have um, the ones in Champaign are grown both open sun and under 65% shade netting. So we can kind of compare and say, yes, all currants are good for shade or only these select varieties are, or these select traits of these varieties are what make them shade tolerant. So I'm concluding that research up this year, or at least the main point of that, which was, this will be year five for them. So we should have pretty good baseline data, at least to start off with for, for recommendations for growers and producers, and even for researchers looking into breeding efforts. Got it. And did I see you've got a Twitter handle, something about Jam Master or Current Jam or... Current jams. Current jams. <laughs> yep. Do, so, do you make current jams and jellies too? I actually, my leave that to my mom. I drop off, you know, baskets for her. She made a good pastas jam this year. Uh, I actually, my specialty is the liqueur, ciders, and hard seltzers market. So, um, I I am a avid cassis maker, creme de cassis. Um, yeah, so actually I came from grapes. Uh, that was what I did after I got my undergrad in plant soil science down at Southern Illinois University Carbondale as I went and worked at a couple of vineyards, fell in love with growing wine grapes and came up here wanting to kind of do something similar. And they were like, okay, you'll be our current guy. And um, I only knew currants from the standpoint of uh, this wine has a notes of black currant, you know, and peppers or something. And so I had never actually even tasted a black currant until after my first year of, of school. So we tend to start out our episodes, our podcast episodes talking about markets for some of these new and emerging crops. And certainly currants are not a new crop. They've been around forever. Um, so can you just give us an overview of where things are at for current markets in the U.S. and you know, maybe the size or state of the industry in the upper Midwest, Wisconsin, Illinois, you know, maybe in Minnesota, Iowa? and where you th see things going and what might get us there. Yeah, so yeah, as you, as you mentioned, I mean, currants have been around uh, for the past couple hundred years as a production crop in Europe. Um, and they were here, they were, they were brought over in, in the 1800s. So early America had currants 
and well into the early 1900s before they were moved from the white pine blister rust. Um, the biggest, I think, start kick, you know, kick up, kickstart of the newest round of current was came from uh, Greg Quinn out of New York, really pushing for current production in the Eastern US. And he started currency and um, got, got the, the band lifted and current started becoming a little bit more of a marketable product on the health food front of here is this crop that is high in vitamin C, um, full of mineral nutrients. And if you have a cough, drink some of this. And, and kind of the same way the elderberry market is currently going right now over in Missouri that you see. In the Midwest, however, it is seemingly, and this you might have a better idea of this than I do about, it's, it's seemingly coming from Wisconsin. That was more or less the, my, my, at least from my standpoint, it seems to be the regional epicenter of current production in the Midwest. And we at the U of I got hooked on it from the agroforestry perspective and as a shade tolerant crop. And so we tried trialing those in central Illinois. There are a few other current growers in Illinois. There's a few more in Wisconsin but we haven't really seen anything of sizable scale, certainly not like what you see in Europe where you can find a 200 acre current field like you would find our, our corn and bean fields right now. Um, the, you know, the biggest that I've seen is about 20 acres in, in any of our states. So it's still a very limited market. And, and some states like uh, Michigan still have bans on what cultivars can be allowed to grow. Um, and so that's also allowing a lot of restriction from what would be considered the, you know, major Midwest fruit production areas. And so I think the, with the cultivars coming out of some of the newer runs from Canada, from McGinnis berry crops, um, they seem to be way better producers and way more resistant to many of the diseases that have put off a lot of farmers. You know, a lot of farmers have planted them out and then they get smacked with powdery mildew. And the, I think the initial selling point for a lot of the, for a lot of currants was that this is a, in the fruit world would be considered a very low spray fruit uh, compared to something like apples or grapes. And um, I think when you start getting diseases like powdery mildew that require a fair amount of sprays to kind of keep controlled, it's been a little bit more of a off-putting. But I think as we get more varieties released that are capable of, hand, you know, uh, being resistant to the diseases, yielding well, and are better suited. So like McGinnis has a stated purpose of breeding for North American palates, which tends to mean higher sugar content, a <laughs> little exactly. bit lower acidity. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. We're all there on that, I think. <laughs> right. Well, let's come back to the disease issues because that's an interesting one, especially as we see how it plays out across Wisconsin and some of our mm -hmm. research too. But um, so for our listeners that maybe aren't all that familiar with currants, there's black currants, white currants, pink currants, red currants. Are they all the same species? Are they the same thing? Yes and no. Uh, black currants are their own separate species. Black currants are Ribes nigrum. Included in black currants are also green currants, which I have no knowledge of other than the fact that they, they have them, they grow those in Scandinavia. And those are a type of Ribes nigrum. Whereas the red, whites, and pink currants are all Ribes rubrum. So they all are in their own species with just different leveling uh, levels of pigments in their fruit, ranging from red to clear white. And I'm one of those American consumers. I'll gobble up the red and the pink and the white, and I'll spit out the black currants as fast as I can. <laughs> so what, what is it about those black currants that, you know, that it's just tart? They're almost astringent, almost dry out your mouth. Yeah, the dryness comes from those, those health benefits. Um, I mean, you can't really even compare, in my opinion, a, a red and white current to a black current in terms of health value. Um, the red and white currents are falling into a, they're still healthy. I don't wanna say that they're not healthy. They still have a lot of vitamin C and a lot of vitamin A and, and some good uses there, but the black currents just are far and away. It's those anthocyanins, of all the antioxidant compounds, um, that is what they I mean. They they are better than blueberries on which we kind of, I think Americans like to set the standard at blueberries. Mm -hmm. um, so it's 
it's that high vitamin C. It, they're healthy. They taste healthy. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> I guess would be the best description. <laughs> and if people have eaten black currants, to, to me, because the plants have been more widely available, is titania black currants. Mm-hmm. But that's just a just scratching the surface of all the different varieties, right? I mean, can you mm-hmm. just talk a little bit more about maybe even some of the breeding programs or or the if you've seen big differences among the varieties of black currants and flavor, astringency, all that stuff. Yeah, so we, so I guess to start off, I would back up that Consort, Coronet, and Crusader were the first releases out of North America for black currants, specifically for resistance to the disease that got them banned, white pine blister rust. And they are considered a horrible berry. Europe did not want them. And uh, they, when you compare them, in terms of uh, mineral nutrient and uh, anthocyanins, like the, the health benefit compounds, they blow the other black currants out of the water. I mean, they they are, the consort is probably arguably one of the healthiest berries out there in terms of full nutritional content. Uh, but it means it's not a, not a good flavored berry for really for processed goods. And so then they bred from that one, Titania, and that was bred to have the European flavors that they want with the resistance that the consort had. And Titania is a good one, it produces well, but it's still on the, what would be considered a blander scale. It's not a top preference. And so there's been some breeding research, I believe out of Oregon State or Washington State, somewhere over there in the West, West Coast there, looking at some varieties that I haven't, I haven't done much work on that. There's ones like Chime, um, and a few other varieties that are listed as being pretty good flavors. Uh, the, the main ones that we've been testing out have been the McGinnis varieties. And those ones I would consider to be getting close. Some of those get close into range of being into a blueberry territory where you could actually eat them fresh out of a bowl. Um, a few of those varieties I've brought to uh, you know family gatherings pre-COVID and had uh, the, the little kids would would eat the whole bowl before the, before the adults could even get to it, which I think is a, a sign of palatability. Yeah. Right. And it's the sugar content I think is going up. The, the acidity kind of goes down a little bit. We're going to be analyzing some of that data here soon to get an idea of, you know, why are these ones better? And we've done a little bit of taste testings two years previously on, uh, you know, sort of what consumers are, are liking with the black currants, both with juice and with fresh berries. And we're, we're finding that there are some varieties that are kind of standing out that people are, they, they tasted it for the first, you know, their first taste of black currants and they're like, well, that's something I yeah, could right. drink that. Yeah. So that's been our experience here in uh, Bayfield County where we have a grower that's, I know a couple, three, four acres, also a blueberry grower. So it works well with their harvesting and field equipment. Uh, to run a blueberry picker over it. And they did uh, Ben Lamont, Ben Sarek uh, to mm-hmm. complement Titania in terms of the maturity. Uh, but it's it's been almost exclusively a processing fruit. It's used to make a pork uh, by yep. a winery or it's used by, um, you know, the few homeowners that like, I shouldn't say a few, but there are folks maybe with some cultural heritage or something that have had mm-hmm. blackcurrant jam or jelly in their background. And so they're buying that to make their jams and jellies. But it's never really been at least our experience yet, a fresh eating, fresh fruit, black currants, always a processing group, but it sounds like maybe that's changing. Do you think that's the industry as breeders wants the industry to go that way is more fresh eating than processing or is the goal still, or the vision to be more of a processing fruit for black currants? In my mind, the appeal to the black currant is it can be machine harvested and machine pruned. And the advantages of that then come into a processed food market and less of a fresh eating. I think there, I think the market would be more towards a frozen berry, for, you know, something that you can add to smoothies or you can pull out and you can add into your confectionaries and your and your baked goods. That would be more the, I think, the berry route. But I still think that in terms of gross sales, in terms of how much a farmer could offload. You, you really can't beat processed goods. And I think historically processing is, I think if, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I wanna say it was something like 90% of, 
of black currants grown in Europe go towards processing. It's either a juice or jams and jellies and, and a very small fragment of that then goes into fresh eating. But it's it seems like, I think there's a potential for them to be a fresh eating fruit. It's just the fresh market fruits are, are kind of a, everyone already has their mind up, up made up about what they want to eat when they go to the fresh, you know, the fresh berry market and they want their strawberries, they want their blueberries, they want their raspberries, maybe just, a blackberry. And they're so incredibly sweet. It's so hard to yes. get people to eat anything but that. Yeah. Yep. Right. So on the um, red, pink and whites, um, I've grown them outside. I'm also growing uh, red in our high tunnel, you know, and to me it's night and day and it's, so can we first agree to just cross white currants off the list um, entirely or, or is Blanca, that's the only variety I've seen that's, you can maybe handpick it, but like Imperial and uh, what's the, what are those other ones? They, they look I'm like caviar. Um, yeah, oh, they come up Imperial. super small. White Imperial yeah. is, um, it makes me cry. We, my <laughs> field crew, when we go out there for harvesting, they, um, we kind of have jokes about, you know, one of the jokes was, well, you're such a white current <laughs> as a, as a way of showing dismay and disgust with somebody and their actions, because it, they, they tend to just squish off the plant and you yeah. just, you don't, it's really hard and it's hard to measure. It's hard to, for me as the researcher, I'm trying to get berry size and stuff and it's, they're all mushed. So what's, what's yeah. I, you know, I have a bag of preserves, not a bag of berries. And three hours later, you move on to your second bush to pick it. <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah, they don't really come off nicely. Um, I do, I do, I do wonder. And you've you've provided pictures of this of trellis options. I yeah. I do think that there might be a potential for maybe on trellis you might be able to get them in a in a better format. But white currants are probably the the biggest tears I shed when I go out into my field. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So then pink is our only option, pink champagne? That's as far as I know. I had, I actually was just sent over a few other varieties that I'm kind of perusing through to see. But as of right now, pink champagne is, is, is sort of the standard. And it's, for me, it's kind of crazy because pink champagne has been around since I want to, I want to say that one was bred in the 1800s, maybe, wow. or early 1900s. So it's, it's yeah. almost like, um, coming from grapes, it's kind of exciting, you know, to, to get back to that territory of uh, historical fruits, fruits that, you know, my great, great grandparents might've tasted at a market at one day. Yeah. Um, right. Right. And I've seen that on trellis outside too. And it's, it's uh, very doable, uh, much bigger mm -hmm. cluster sizes, easier to pick and the berries are big and they're really sweet. People like the pink currants. It's just been, yeah. Or the pink champagne. It's just, if you grow it as a, in a shrub form, and it gets overgrown because it is pretty vigorous. It just kind of gets to be a nightmare to pick too. But mm -hmm. okay, so that brings us to red currants. Can you tell us more about kind of red currants? And that, to me, if I understand it right, is is grown more widely, both in Europe and even more so, maybe even in the U.S. Yeah. So red currants, I, I they have a little bit better of a market. They can be frozen pretty well. They have a little bit better. Um, curb appeal you might say they tend to hold their their fruit size and and stay pretty well in the fridge so you can sell them as sort of a fresh market sort of plant they also have released some cultivars with thicker skins that um at least in europe they are doing a fairly good job of machine harvesting which mm -hmm. i think is very appealing to farmers mm -hmm. um, but they also do pretty well i think on trellis when i went to when i was over in, in the netherlands they had trellis uh, red currants that looked beautiful and yeah. and I think you sent over yeah that picture of maybe cherry or wilder or something what Ravada maybe that was on Ravada yeah yeah and I'm, I'm working working on my um a, a publication or extension publication that shows you know it's basically trying to mimic what they're doing in, in Europe in the high tunnel greenhouse but it is mm -hmm. night and day I mean and they're huge they're almost like grape clusters that get so big so I think yeah now, whether it pays for the high tunnel structure is a whole other question when you can grow tomatoes or something else in there, but mm -hmm. still it's mm -hmm. an amazing fruit. Anything else to say on red currants in terms of varieties? Or yeah, actually, I just finally pulled up my recommended cultivars list here. And this was based on uh, maybe last year and two years ago. So I haven't fully updated from last year's data, but um, 
I did put down that with sprays, the Primus was a good white currant cultivar. It produced fruit that was well enough, in my opinion. But we had tremendous issues with powdery mildew this year. And the powdery mildew was, it was the first time I seen powdery mildew on fruit, actually. Wow. Uh, powdery mildew for black currants tends to just stick to the leaves um, and causes foliar damage, which causes plant health damage, which reduces your yields. But this was the first time I actually saw it jump to the fruit and actually have fruit damage to the plants. But um, if you can control that, which powdery mildew for the most part can be controlled organically with the correct sprays at the correct times, it wasn't a bad one. Uh, in terms of red currants, I have cherry debt van, cherry and debt van listed as sort of my top ones. The cherry current, red current, I was amazed with how easy those ones were har for harvesting. They just kind of you could pull those off. They were nice big clusters, uh, even just in shrub form. And so I found those ones to be really exciting. We were usually pretty happy when we got to that with the cherries. It was, oh, it's a cherry, it's a cherry treatment we're harvesting and yay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. My turn. I get to do this one. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> I'll have to try that one. We've we only have Rivada on the high tunnel mainly because of its resistance to powdery mildew. Mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. huh. Is cherry resistant to it, you know? Yes, uh, or at least that's, well, I'll, I'll have to go through and compile some more data on that one, but uh, at least it was two years ago, it was resistant. Okay, so what's your take? Do you think fresh eating red currants are a market opportunity for growers? You know, CSA, I, pick your own farm stand. I think so. I think it's gonna take some time to get Americans warmed up to currants which is, I think, a, a whole discussion in itself. Um, but I do think that if, if, they, if they were, I, I do think a lot of people enjoy them. They do enjoy eating them. They enjoy baking with them. They also aren't, they're not horrible for um, jams and jellies and preserves kind of thing. They, they do pretty well for that too. So they just don't tend to have quite as the versatility that the black currants do. The, they, don't, they don't juice well. So, or at least you never, the times that I've juiced them has been minimal, you know, quality at best. There's something there. Um, uh, the local brewery did make a red currant beer, uh, a red currant wheat, and it turned out pretty good. Um, I've brewed with, with red currants before and they've, they've, they've turned out actually not too bad. The flavors are more reminiscent of like a strawberry raspberry with a little more sour kick to them, a lot more sour kick to them, I guess I'd say. And the um, one of the major puree markets for brewers, winemakers, everything else is out of Oregon, and they do sell a, a red currant puree. So I think that's at least a sign that at least they're finding a market worthy of the time, the effort, and the cost to make that product. Well, let's shift to your research. I think it's fascinating the work that you guys are doing with these agroforestry systems and and taking advantage of the shade tolerant properties. So maybe just talk through what, what you've been doing, what you're finding, and, and maybe even how folks can read up on the results after they listen to the podcast. Yeah, so, so hopefully uh, publications will start rolling out from this, uh, this fall and into the next year. I do have some publications that we're working on um, from my master's work. I do have one publication about the, the shade tolerance of black currants. Uh, we found that 65% shading was completely fine for the plants with, with, uh, with no issues in terms of production growth. Uh, a slight increase in disease, that, that study was done with consorts and consort does get powdery mildew damage and powdery mildew does like shaded environments. So we, you know, the, the main takeaway from that was we're good up to 65%. We had an 85% shade treatment where the only loss we really, really saw uh, consistently through the years was a slight decrease in sugar one of the years. But for the most part, the plants actually seemed to do okay. It just started to yield less. We had about a 25% reduction in yield in, in the 85% shading. And you start to lose some vigor in the plants themselves. Uh, so that trial, though, was in the same uh, site that has uh, what we call the Woody Perennial Polyculture Project, which a lot of peas in that one. Um, and that one involved uh, planting of chestnuts, currants, hazelnuts, raspberries, and apples. 
and we planted those out into blocks to compare with corn and bean standard conventional rotations. And we found that one, at least as of year nine or 10, uh, ag agroforestry systems do not out yield corn and bean systems, which was more or less what our thoughts were to begin with. But we did find that we, we, we reduced the amount of uh, nitrogen leaching tremendously, even though we were we applied nitrogen the same to both the corn and beans. So we were actually fertilizing our agroforestry systems excessively, you might that say. From is an incredible amount. Yeah. Yes, 100 pounds of nitrogen per year, Oof. per acre. Yeah. So we were throwing down nitrogen, and um, the the that still the plants soak it up. We had we had hay in between the rows that we were baling, and so I think that also helped quite a bit in terms of sort of soaking up any of that nitrogen. But then underneath that, you have all these tree roots. Mm -hmm. And so those systems have been working pretty well. The currents inside of those are in the rows for the chestnuts and are still producing like crazy. They still grow very well. Um, so you said up to 65% shade. Can you kind of give us a visual of what that is like? 65% so like shade would be maybe like under um, more of like a dappled, apple orchard is kind of what I would say, you know, so sort of what you might find at the base of an apple tree or a chestnut tree for that matter. Is that um, shady enough it would um, slow down some of the weed growth? I wish. Yeah, yeah. no, okay. we, I think we found that for the most part. Okay, so I take that back. We, it does seem to reduce weeds, in, weeds a little bit, but it's it, more or less, it just shifts the weed species you have. So okay. we found that a little bit more of um, some of like the smaller grass species coming through um, a lot more of like henbit and stuff like that, which aren't quite as big of an issue. Uh, and then the other issue though with that is that when you have species like the pigweeds, uh, the amaranth species or like mare's tail, they tend to get a good footing. They tend to germinate and then they tend to bolt to try to reach the top. So you get these long, tall, spindly huh. things uh, inside, your, inside your rows. And so, um, yeah, unfortunately it's still not enough. The 85% shade netting is when we started, I think, noticing that the weeds were staying out, that it was getting to the heavier shade level. Um, and so, you know, arguably by that point, that might be something. And the other difference, another consideration that we had to make sure that we were clear about when we wrote the papers is that these were shade nettings and shade netting is not the same as, as what you get in sunlight. Sunlight is dappled shade. And so you might get a heavy shade for a moment and then your plants might all of a sudden get full sunlight for another hour and then right. they go back and they go back and forth. And so the plants response in that way could be incredibly different than what we had measured from a uniform shading environment. And so we, I would actually say ours compares arguably more to what would be like the um, semi-transparent agrivoltaics that's been going on, the photovoltaics hmm. and growing plants underneath those or in the, the photovoltaics on greenhouses. Mm -hmm. So that might be a little more of a fair comparison, but uh, the, even just the currents that are growing under the chestnuts right now, we're finding are doing incredibly well and give us hope that yeah, this, this, this should work pretty well. And I would say that leads into sort of the um, variety trial that we have going on in that it's, we have those plants under 65% shade. because so we're like, okay, this is our max that we feel comfortable with. And we've been testing those out. And for the most part, most, most of the black currants are doing well, but it seems to be more of a, if they do very well under full sun, they just still do very well under shade. And so it's more of just a, um, a plant that can produce four pounds of berries in a season, might produce three pounds of berries in a season under shade, but that's still gonna be you know, more than enough berries than what we were wanting or something like that, so. Right, or more than you would grow, than you would grow with nothing. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Okay, so the, the chestnut current system, or really you could, you know, add in your shade tree or, you know, walnut or whatever, maybe mm -hmm. 
Well, maybe not walnut. Does it concurrence go grow under walnut? Do you know? So I have a walnut tree in my backyard and I planted out currants, gooseberries and elderberries underneath it. So far, they're all still alive. So uh, I guess we'll have to keep further uh, testing that hypothesis, but um, black walnut, you know, uh, plants and resistance to that, it seems to be fairly variable. And so that would, I would, I feel more comfortable claiming that it's okay if I had a nice little trial I could do where I could put, you know, some in full sun, some in the walnuts shade, and, and then I could. Sure. But the idea good. is you've got an overstory crop and you've got the understory crop. So how would you harvest mechanically the current? So they just offset enough from the trunk that you could get a straddle harvester over the row or is, or is the chestnut literally right in the row with the current? So this, this was our first planting of this sort um, in Illinois and I, with our research trials. And that wasn't really a consideration at first. Uh, machine harvesters weren't really a talked about item for the black currants in our research group. And so we end up moving further on, planted out one more trial of black currants, a much larger trial with black currants, chestnuts, uh, various tree species, and ran into the same issue. And at that point, that was a, about 38 acre planting. And so that was outside the realm of, we'll just send out some undergrads to harvest some, and some grad students to harvest currants. And it turned into the realm of we need a harvester because we won't get these harvested. And that is when we discovered the major restrictions of planting currants in the same row as your tree species. Uh, the machine harvesters do not, there are some that do weaving that you can actually manually push it kind of into the rows and manually pull it back out um, with, um, with your hydraulics. So that first site, what we do now is we developed a side catchment system and we use hydraulic shakers that you traditionally see maybe in olives or blueberries. And we run those pneumatics down the side with the catchment systems pulled by um, a small Kubota and a small Kubota tractor and a side-by-side um, -side UTV. And that tends to do pretty well. We have found that, I mean, it increases, I don't have those numbers in front of me either, that we have found that that does a really good job of speeding up the harvesting process and the overall just um, the backs and the arms of all the harvesters and the crew that's a part of it. And so that's not a bad option. And that's, that's with plants, those trees were planted on, I wanna say 10 or, 10 or 20 foot spacing in between, like in, within row and we're able to kind of move right along just fine and we can move around those trees with no issues. Uh, for the uh, machine harvester, um, I guess in a way for the black currant industry, we were fortunate enough to have bad success rate with the chestnuts that we planted out. And so most of the chestnuts then end up getting removed. And so we have these nice long strips of black currants that we're allowed to har that we can harvest just fine from. And on that site, we're replanting now with pecans in between those rows. And so that then allows us about 12 foot spacing on either side of the plants, the current plants that we can then run the harvester through without affecting the trees and without having to do any of the weaving. And gotcha. so I think going forward for any recommendations I give to any growers, it's if you plan on machine harvesting, you need to have 12 foot rows from the nearest tree or allow those tree spacings within the row to go into more of the 80 foot, 100 foot kind of, you know, way broad, you know, broader range. And then I think you could do currents, you know, pretty well to just weaving with the, with the machine harvester. So we, we tried out a bunch of har uh, straddle type harvesters with our hazelnut project. And we mm -hmm. tried the um, uh, Joanna four Aronia harvester, mm -hmm. which has got that offset picking head that's designed to pick half the plant at a time. And it basically just knifes right through the plant bends yep. the stems over and shakes them off. And I wonder, even with chestnuts or walnuts or whatever in the row, uh, I would think you could nose that thing in there and just go right by the edge of the chestnut and then, or the, and then come back on the other side of the row. Now there's two passes per row, which isn't ideal, but yep. maybe that's something so that's, that could accommodate it. Yep, we use a Joanna 3, and it's about the same way. And 
So what we were able to do was um, you would just have somebody that would be walking the row while the other people are on the harvester and the tractor and they would manually move the that guide arm around the trees and our trees were still within year three year four so you could kind of bend those trees too and we we're able to make it work as long as the currents were within you know not within six ish feet of the base of the tree okay. and because outside of that then i mean you would be able to get some you know you get some of the branches but you weren't harvesting half and then half you're harvesting more like a quarter and then a quarter and you would you'd be still be missing some which isn't the worst thing you call it you know animal fodder or something sure, and, right. and and feel good but um it's doable i think just from a production standpoint it's a lot more effort than just driving straight down a row and straight back down a row right. but i do think with the right spacing of the trees that's where so we tried doing that with our um our smaller site and those trees were just too close closely spaced that you couldn't you couldn't get that weave effect quite the same way as our larger site where the trees were planted more in that that 30 foot to 40 mm -hmm. foot kind of spacing and that that branch that we made it worth it and we could get enough currents pulled in to make it i think profitable at that point um okay. and then i but i think from a out, you know planting out standpoint it, there's it's kind of nice to be able to just run it right down, down and run road. it right back yeah because yeah, right, right. you can you can haul on this then yeah okay well maybe let's just shift to a little bit we don't need to go into too much detail because uh but just uh sort of black current culture 101 i got a field and i want to plant currents you got mm -hmm. five minutes to tell me how to do it go cool <laughs> so what i would do is um the first step is i would do site prep getting rid of the weeds Weed, it, weeds are, uh, in my opinion, the worst competition you're going to find for current. If you have heavy perennial grasses, your currents will die. Uh, if you have a really, really bad thistle problem or something, your currents will probably die. They will not establish. Um, they tend to get choked out really quickly, and they are not competitive. They're woodland species. Woodland species do not compete with grassland species. Grasses always beat forest. So that would be my first thing. Control your weeds. If you have good controlled weeds, move on to step two, which would be, in my opinion, your best bet is to take cuttings and put in direct cuttings. The second best option would be bare roots. And third option would then be to go and actually do full planted, you know, full, full potted, pot, potted plants. Um, we so use tree that, planters. That, real quick mm -hmm. on the planting stock. So um, you can, What's mainly available, bare root and these tissue culture plants grown in plugs? Is that, how do you feel about yep. those? They, I mean, they work. They tend to bring up the cost, which is unnecessary in my opinion. Uh, the currants just grow so well from cuttings. You can, um, we fill in all our plants that don't make it by just taking a cutting when we're pruning and you just shove that in the ground and leave, you know, four to six inches above. And for the most part, that seemed to work remarkably well. Um, I think from a from a smaller standpoint, it might be easier just to get plugs and plant plugs, and you can you already are assured that that plant is healthy and and good to go in the ground. But from a cost standpoint, from a farming standpoint, it would be hard to justify such a high cost uh, increase compared to just a bare root or even just a single cutting. And are any of these newer varieties patented or? Or you're free yes. to propagate with the cuttings. No, yep. So it. black comb is 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 um, one of the most probably the most common one you'll see. I think out of McGinnis, and that one is is patented. Um, Titania just came off patent. Um, I'm actually not positive about the bin series, um, and I think Tibbin is a Polish variety that might have just come off patent, but I'm not positive on that. Okay, so, so just so our listeners are clear, if they're patented, you're not allowed to, to propagate through cuttings, even on your own farm, right? Certainly couldn't sell them, but you can't. Can't sell them. Sometimes what you can get through is, uh, depending on who the patent holder is and what rules they allow, you can sometimes just pay them the royalties. And so you say, hey, I want to expand an extra five acres and I'm going to be planting out, you know, 10,000 cuttings. And they say, cool, send me over the check for, you know, X amount of money per plant and we'll call it good. So 
Um, selling outside of that though, they wanna make sure that you're not selling off bad genetics. And there's been cases of like with Titania, all of a sudden now they're finding that it might have white pine blister rust. And they believe that's because of a nursery selling off stock and not doing a good job of controlling genetics. And so that's as much of anything, the reasons why patent holders are very particular about their patents and who can buy them. It's not always from a, you know, need to get the money standpoint. It's as much protecting the genetics and saying, this is a good product and it's a safe product and it, it matches everything you want. Okay. All right. So you got your plants um, that you've chosen. Keep going. And so then I, I would put them in the ground. The first thing I would do is weed control. So whether that's a conventional method of putting down some pre-emergent options that there's plenty of pre-emerge options that you can use for the first year for current production. Um, or I think at this point, my biggest recommendation would be to put down some sort of fabric mulch. And, you know, up there in Wisconsin, I would go with, I think a black fabric mulch is just fine. Uh, DeWitt makes some really good products for that. Whereas I think down here in central Illinois, we are, we are in the lowest Southern range for growing currants. And so they, they have a really hard time with our heat, especially our 95 degrees in July during harvest heat that we get. And so in that case, I would go with more of a white mulch probably, but I would put down a fabric mulch. That way you don't have to worry about weeds coming in there really at all. Um, the, a lot of those are also able to put in your fertilizer. So your first year, you put them in the ground, you control weeds, that's your biggest issue. Then moving forward, what you'll end up wanting to do you can, you can go through and you can trim the tops to encourage shoot growth. Um, I've, I've actually, I actually think at this point from a commercial standpoint, just let them grow. Uh, don't worry about, about topping them or anything like that. They tend to just bud out just fine from the basal area. Then from there, you go into year two. That's when you want to start adding in your fertilizer. Currents are a heavy feeder. They are listed at needing 100 pounds of nitrogen per acre per year which is a lot. Uh, yeah, I, I read that in one of your crop. publications and I thought, did I read that right? That is, a, but they respond, yeah. huh? There's the Yeah, I think it's as, and... I think it's as much because they're a shallow rooted plant compared to most of the fruit crops where you typically are restricting nitrogen. And we pull off so much biomass from them per year, especially once they hit maturity. Uh, and that's a mature plant. You are at hundred pounds per nitrogen per acre. You would not put hundred pounds nitrogen per acre on your two or three year plant. Yeah. Those ones are more at about the 20 to 40 kind of range. Uh, essentially goes up by about 20 pounds per nitrogen per acre per growing season, essentially. Mm -hmm. And then maxes out 100 pounds. Um, but that's something I would like to see a little more research on, at least in the Midwest, because our soils are very rich compared to where they're traditionally grown over in the UK or Scandinavia, where they have, um, they don't quite have our deep, healthy loamy goodness of soils that we have here sure. and so that recommendation might fall down more and more as we get a little better um, research into that but um, as of right now that's been the recommendations I've gone with and that's what I'm that's what I've been going with so mm -hmm. but maybe that would help control some of our powdery mildew issues or something a lot of times heavy nitrogen can sometimes open up your plants to disease issues so it's something to look into further but yeah. putting down a heavy amount of nitrogen um, you can do that with compost. Compost is not a bad option. Currents like that cool soil and you put down compost and you have cool soil now. Um, one of the major issues though is, is voles. Voles love to, to bury in the root zone. They love to chew about the bottoms of the roots and you put down mulch, you put down compost and you just gave them the best habitat for them to run around in and to thrive. And so that's where it can get a little iffy. Um, and so most of our trials are, are done conventionally with herbicides to control, to control weeds. So I've put a cutting in the ground, let's say this spring. Um, when am I gonna pick my first black current? So if you're in Champaign, if you're in central Illinois, year three, you can be arguably getting, a, you know, worth going out there and harvesting. Um, getting up into Wisconsin, I would say year four and arguably maybe even to year five. I think you might have a good idea of what the sort of the northern limits look like there. Yeah, but for they, sure by year four. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. 
you know, if it's a bare root plant, a sizable root system for sure, year four, mm -hmm. most likely year three. If it's a cutting, you know, and it's struggling that first year a little bit, might push it back a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That seems to be at year three. By year five, I think, is when we would consider those to be mature plants. Um, we're going into year five now, and they're, they look like a current planting. They look, they look big, they look large, they look healthy. Um, and how tall will they get where you are? Like so, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. So Titania right now is standing at maybe up to my nose. So maybe a little over five feet tall, okay. five and a half. Um, and the biggest issue I think is what we're having is a lot of the arms like to lay down. So they, they go up tall and then they start to lean. Yeah. And um, that's as and much, they, I think. Yeah. And then they root if they hit the ground. <laughs> no, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Some of them root like, like a blackberry does. I mean, they, they're hovering above the soil and then they're like, well, it's time to root out here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the bane of all black currant growers pruning. How do you do it? Mm -hmm. What's recommended? <sighs> At this point, I would, my back says coppice them. My back says to go through. Uh, we, one of the farms had, uh, was using a BCS sickle bar mower to fairly good success and just mowing them down. You mow them down in a coppice cycle of usually three. Although I, I, we have a little trial going on. I think there might be evidence for even pushing it to year four. And so you take out a quarter to one third of your fields of production every year, but you save yourself maybe nine, you know, 80, 90% of your time right. gets saved. Um, but if you do hand prune, hand pruning is not a horrible option. You prune them back to make sure that you don't have too many overlapping stems. You want good, healthy one-year um, one uh, stems and, and shoots from it. And, but you still want a good amount of the, sort of the older wood because that older wood will throw off ideally some nice, healthy one-year shoots. And I will say that pruning for the black currants is different than pruning for the other current species, the, the rubus species. Uh, those ones will also fruit on second year wood. And so that kind of changes up a little bit more of your style of your pruning methods. And you don't tend to, you don't tend to keep as many canes and you try to keep more single larger stems that then have a lot of that fruiting wood on there. Mm -hmm. And so it's a little bit different between the two of them and, and red currants and white currants tend to throw a lot of low shoots out that can be pretty quickly pruned. Uh, whereas the black currants, the black currants, we tend to um, prune those out into more of an open base style, style setting. Yep. And, and I guess- the Not pruning, black currants is not an option, right? I mean, they just get so overgrown that they... I haven't done it yet. I haven't seen them. You know, I've seen a few that we've let go just for about the past five, six years. They're still producing and they are just incredibly dense. They're these massive plants. Uh, yeah. They almost are competing with some of the hazelnuts <laughs> in, huh. terms of, in terms of like just density. So um, arguably you might be able to get away with missing a few years of pruning and yeah. and still having a healthy plant but they tend to have a lot of issues with about year four those those canes just start to die they, mm -hmm. they just they really just kind of give up and um, i think it's almost a self-pruning by the plants but from a um from a farming standpoint that's that's wasted space that you have now and it's taking up room and so you kind of want to at the very least a quick pruning just to remove all the old wood and kind of diseased sort of wood would be very, very worthwhile. I guess I'd add a couple more things would be yeah. uh, plant spacing on black currants. You can grow them in a hedgerow system. So we grow them out at two foot spacing and they grow in these real dense hedges and um, which can be a real pain for hand harvesting, but works incredibly well for the machine harvesting. Whereas if you're going more for a U-pick style operation, or even just you're going to be hand harvesting with them, then that's when you want to kind of space them out into that four up to six foot range. And then you have these nice, big, open current plants that you can get into and really, really get in there and, um, and, and harvest from them easily. So 
that's one thing. And I guess that one thing to add to the hedgerow system is that the Wermschuk, the company that makes the uh, Joanna, they do have um, uh, shrub shapers. And so they make this thing that you kind of drive along and it keeps the plants in an upright position. And that's what they do for pruning maintenance before coppicing is that they just let them go and they just run that through um, for the first three or four years. And that keeps the shape upright without having to go out and hand prune those out. Got and it. then that's the only pruning they do is running those through and then they coppice them. And so uh, that, I just, I just discovered that one recently and that one has kind of opened up some dreams into yeah. what a full commercial current operation could really look like here in the yeah. US. So that's taken off all those branches that are hanging down basically. Yes, which and currants just, just love to do that, especially yeah. with that fruiting wood. They'll throw out this nice healthy one year and then they they'll get covered in fruit and then they're just down on the ground and you're like now you're now you're nothing except for rooting and and yeah. causing headaches <laughs> right and do you see you know with raspberries sometimes you'll put a single wire trellis on you know, like a tea trellis can you do that with currants and tie those canes up or is it just too much work for the volume of fruit that you or value of the i so my guess as to why you don't see that is because they are marketed as machine harvested fruit. And if you have wires in the way, you're not going to be able to machine harvest as well. Mm -hmm. And so I would, I would say probably not. I would say you would have a better chance of seeing that than I, once again, I think that's where the red and white currents are. I would view them at least for Illinois and arguably for the Midwest as a trellised fruit. And they should be considered more of a trellised fruit. Mm -hmm. and putting out on a one, two wire, single wires. Um, so more of like the, a low standing grape kind of look instead of yep. the T the wires that you kind of more see with the-, with yep. the uh, And I would echo that recommendation for, for red currants as well. Mm -hmm. Don't even bother as a shrub. The quality and the ease of picking on a trellis is so much better. Yeah, and they look cleaner. They just, it looks nice just from a, as a farmer who's very big into aesthetics, I would, yeah. I would, I would trellis them. <laughs> yeah. Yep. As we get to the end here, just to repeat, uh, I know it's still your results aren't all in yet on the black current trials, but do you have, you know, the top three or four that have your eye in terms of varieties yeah, to, to look at? So the, honestly, the biggest downside of our trials is that we are using cultivars that are unavailable right now. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the McGinnis varieties that I am probably the most ecstatic about are still unavailable uh, for sales. They're still in the developmental stage, but hopefully um, the will be changing in the next few years. Um, so like in those unavailable ones, the, the ones that people should keep on their list of, you know, keep an eye out for in the coming future uh, was the, the Chikamoose or Chakamoose. Uh, cultivar. It's a very high yielder. The fruit quality is uh, mild. Um, and actually that's probably the biggest complaint we've gotten from our taste testings is that this fruit just doesn't, doesn't quite have a full flavor. It's more of a watered down black currant flavor. But I almost argue that's why we might be able to attract the Americans yeah, right. in. I'm thinking, huh, um, that sounds kind of nice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then that same vein is the Nic Nicola, um, black currant variety, which is also very high yielder and, um, and has sort of a milder flavor. The best one I found so far that's currently available is black comb. I've been very impressed. That one is the best looking plant, which once again, as an aesthetic farmer, it grows the, grows the most even and upright. We don't have to worry as much about the plants falling over. Uh, the most disease resistant that we found and the fruit quality has actually been the most preferred overall. Um, we actually sold um, a few hundred pounds to the local brewery in town here, and they made a black currant sour. And they they specifically wanted the black comb after I sat down and tasted tasted through the, the currants with them. Um, some other kind of mm -hmm. black comb is from McGinnis. Yep. Want to say that I think Tassis, a couple other varieties are also available from them. And I would say like any McGinnis variety so far that we've tested have been very exciting to see. They are all very high yielders with very good fruit quality. Um, but they have, we have found that some of them have this newer disease that we're discovering, which is called um, 
cane dieback, current cane dieback, um, also known as Botryosphaeria ribus. And uh, some of them have been found to be incredibly susceptible to that. So that's been very concerning, but um, for, the, for the most part, all the varieties that I just listed are all varieties that haven't really seemed to have an issue with it yet, so. Okay. And maybe finally, we should talk about powdery mildew because that's one thing being up in Northern Wisconsin, we just don't have the heat and humidity. And yep. I don't think I've ever seen powdery mildew on, on our <laughs> currents. Um, so do you think it really is just a, I mean, obviously there's some disease resistance that we can play with, but it, it's more of a climate type issue than anything, yeah? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that's where I think proper pruning, giving them proper, you know, it's like the, one of the major advantages of pruning is that you have that better airflow and better light penetration. Um, keeping your plants healthy and really making sure, like we've had some issues with um, iron and magnesium chlorosis in the early springs with those wet soils. And I think that tends to exasperate the powdery mildew problem. It really just kind of allows those plants to kind of open up. Um, so one of the farms around here is actually gonna experiment with some micronutrient um, options to see if that might just, they can just plant, you know, boost the plant bigger. Will that reduce some of the issues they're seeing with the cane dieback and also with like a leaf spot on some of the red currants um, and then also powdery mildew on some of the, some of the lesser varieties they have. Um, but we have had we have found good success using um, a product called Millstop, which is a potassium bicarbonate, mm -hmm. and um, also just with using mineral oil. Um, the issue is that the mineral oil really becomes an issue when we have those hot summer days and we can't spray because um, the the that'll choke the plants out if you spray the that horticultural mineral oil. Mm -hmm. And so we've that's where the the potassium bicarbonate has been really nice because we can spray that in any conditions. We're not really as worried about it, not as restricted. And those all seem to be doing a pretty good job, I think, of controlling the disease on the susceptible varieties. But in terms of cultivar selection, all the new cultivars from McGinnis are all resistant. Many of the newer releases out of Europe, like Tibbin, um, are all resistant as well. Um, ben Lamond, we have a horrible time with that. That one is. That one is actually right now kind of our um, our disease option. We I can go out there and show you pretty much every disease we have on currants yeah. with that plant. Right, right. Um, it gets it gets I guess the white pine blister rust real bad too. So we can use that as our as our show and tell for here's why currants were banned. Yeah. Uh, and so it's it's kind of as a researcher, it's been a really fun plant to have, but <laughs> commercially maybe not so much mm -hmm. <laughs> for down here. Right. So how about um, spotted wing drosophila? So far, currents? knock on wood, have not seen them on the currents. We, we get them in the elderberries real bad. Mm -hmm. um, so we know they're here. We get them in the raspberries real bad, but we have not seen them in the currents. And I'm hopeful that the thicker skin that's on those currents is enough to keep them out. Um, I haven't really checked too much on the red and white currents for them, but seemingly are also not a big deal yet. And I don't know if maybe we're just, because we harvest those so early, those are harvested mainly in, in late June through early July. If we're kind of narrowly missing that window when the spotted wing drosophila really is coming in strong. Yeah. And so that might be sort of a life cycle benefit that we have available to us with the currents. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so far so good. And I'm hoping it stays that way. And that's been, been our experience up here. We, we see a little bit on the very tail end of like the later maturing, something like Blanca. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it may not even be spotted wing that's in those. It could just be a whole range of Drosophila that's taking advantage of those overripe fruit. You know, like, mm -hmm. like I said, it's the very tail end. <clears throat> so with the early ripening and, and the thicker skin, I think you're right. I think it's, I don't know if we should ever say it's resistant to spotted wing, but it's, you know, it might be like a grape where it's just yeah. not as big of a concern. That's the other fruits. But. I'd like to see that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, no. Any last thoughts about currants or suggestions or comments? I would highly recommend to grow them. I think growing them in a full-on farming commercial system is a great option. I think including them into a little agroforestry or even into um, like a food forest style thing, I think that's a good option as well. They 
they are, in my opinion, still one of my top recommended shade tolerant fruit crops. And I think a lot of a lot of people could stand to at least go out and try a current if you have the opportunity to. And if you have the opportunity to take a cutting from someone, I think go out there and do that and get some plants going and 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 start growing them wherever you can because I think they're a great crop. I think they have a uh, huge potential for the health food market and just for overall taste. And we just the biggest the biggest holdback and setback we have right now is that nobody knows what a black currant is or a red currant or a white currant. So I think the more people that try them, I think we're going to just see them keep growing. I don't see anyone all of a sudden being, I don't see the American market all of a sudden reverting back to, nah, we don't want it. I think it's going to be a, an up and coming market, um, especially what I've been seeing with, especially in like the, the brewing wine liqueur world. It's mm -hmm. more and more products are, are throwing in black currants in particular, but also like the red currants I saw at the, with the red currant wheat, I think we're only expanding into a realm of great opportunities and it's never too late to throw out a couple acres of black currants. Brought to you by the University of Wisconsin-Madison Division of Extension.